Chapter 13, an appeal for a return to the biblical Christ. I begin with a quotation from William Penn. I should inform you, reader, concerning the origin of the Trinitarian doctrine, thou mayest assure thyself it is not from the scriptures nor from reason. Much of traditional theological language about the nature of Jesus is based on a so-called reinterpretation of the Bible, especially of John's Gospel, but it is a reinterpretation which alters the meaning of the original. John A. T. Robinson says, it is clear that patristic theology of whatever school abused these texts in John by taking them out of context and giving them a meaning which it is evident that John never intended. That's from Robinson's 12 more New Testament studies. Otherwise stated, John's gospel was, quote, taken over by the Gnosticizers. That was from an article entitled Done on John in the Theology Magazine of 1982. The tendency thus introduced is with us to this very day. The texts which suffered violence at the hands of the church fathers were those having to do with the origin of Jesus. John's words were given new meanings to lend support to the notion that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, rather than a human being supernaturally begotten as Son of God in the womb of his mother, as Matthew and Luke record. The transition occurred when Christology, that's the study of who Christ is, was restated in terms of Greek philosophy, which was incompatible with the biblical documents. I quote, functional language about the Son and the Spirit being sent into the world by the Father was transposed into that of eternal and internal relationships between persons with a capital P in the Godhead, and words like generation and procession were made into technical terms which New Testament usage simply will not substantiate. That's a quotation from J.A.T. Robinson's 12 more New Testament studies. Augustine, when faced with John 17 verse 3, where John's unitary monotheism is most clear, was forced to suggest an alteration of the text to include Jesus Christ within the phrase, only true God. Augustine proposed to restructure the verse like this. This is eternal life, that they may know thee and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent as the only true God. You'll find that quotation in Augustine's homilies on John, tractate. 105. Augustine had inherited a tradition in which biblical monotheism became expanded to include a second person as supreme being. Augustine's alteration of scripture to fit his system is the inevitable result of trying to explain the essentially Hebrew scriptures in terms of the alien thought world of Greek philosophy. The attempt ought to be abandoned. Greek philosophy thinks in terms of, quote, essence. Things are related because they are of the same stuff. Objects that are green partake of the essence of greenness. So, post-biblical theologians have argued the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share a common quality of godness. This fact, of course, is quite obvious, but it's sadly inadequate as a way of describing the richness of the biblical data. It blurs the sharp contours of the Bible's definition of the one God, his Son, and the Holy Spirit. It seems to us as if the doctrine of the Trinity is like saying that a plane, a car, and a tricycle are essentially the same thing. They possess the common quality of conveyance. There is, of course, truth to this, but it's not the whole truth. 
actually these three things are very different. It is that difference between Father, Son and Holy Spirit which is swamped by the dogma that they are all, quote, one God. The fact that the Son of God has a beginning, according to Luke, has been overwhelmed by the teaching that the Son never had a beginning. The influence of Greek philosophy has been a disaster, especially because it's produced desperate attempts to gerrymander the text of the Bible into the prescribed mold of the later creeds. Documenting this post-biblical shift of opinion about the Godhead, another prominent New Testament scholar observes that, and I quote, there is no basis in Johannine theology or the later scholastic theology of the procession of the Son from the Father within the Trinity by generation. It was a quotation from Edward Schillebick's in his book, Christ, written in 1980. The idea of the Son of God generated in eternity is far into the Bible. Jesus in the Bible is Son of God because of the virgin birth. Luke 1, verse 35, and further marked out as such, quote, with power by the resurrection, according to Romans 1, verse 4. Nevertheless, belief in the eternal generation of the Son was made the hallmark of orthodox belief and a requirement for salvation. Raymond Brown admits that the non-biblical language was forced onto John's language about Jesus coming from God. Commenting on John 8 verse 42, where we have the words of Jesus, I proceeded forth and came from God, as the King James Version reads, Raymond Brown notes that, and I quote, the phrase from God found its way into the Nicene Creed in the, and I add, unbiblical expression, God from God. Theologians have used this passage as a description of the internal life of the Trinity, indicating that the Son proceeds from the Father. However, the aorist tense indicates that the reference is rather to the mission of the Son. That's a quotation from Raymond Brown in his commentary of the Gospel of John, Anchor Bible Series, 1966. Similarly, Jesus says, quote, I came forth from the Father, John 16, verse 28. Brown cautions us that from ek in the Greek, cannot be interpreted theologically in reference to the intra-Trinitarian relationship of Father and Son, came out from the Father. The phrase, in fact, does not mean what, as Raymond Brown again says, later theology would call the procession of the Son. Moreover, Raymond Brown points out that in John 8, verse 47, phrase from God in the Greek ek tu theou is used quote to describe an ordinary believer the man who belongs to God the language used of Jesus applies also to Christians so also in John 17 verse 8 quote I came forth from you refers to the earthly mission of the son rather than to an intra-trinitarian procession we may add that the sending, which are sometimes used to support the eternal pre-existence of the Son, will not bear the weight put upon them. The same words are used of believers, who are also, quote, sent, and quote, again, just as Jesus is sent. John 17, verse 18, John 20, verse 21. Despite this clear evidence, commentaries have continued to misread John's intention in the interests of promoting Nicene theology. Plummer says dogmatically, but without support from the text, I quote, I came out from includes the eternal generation of the Son. That's in Plummer's Gospel of John, Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, written in 1882. 
This appears to be an example of reading John within a post-biblical framework, instead of acknowledging that John did not have, quote, one foot in the world of Greek philosophy and Nicene theology, as he is so often presented, as J.A.T. Robinson observed in 12 more New Testament studies. The so-called church fathers of the 3rd and 4th centuries changed the language of the Bible by reading their own philosophical meanings into biblical words instead of allowing the scriptural text to speak to them within its own Hebrew messianic context. The result was a reconstruction of the person of Jesus which turned him into an abstraction, contrary to Luke's transparently clear statement that Jesus is a new creation by means of Mary's supernatural conception. Holy Spirit, in the Greek, Pnevma Aion, shall come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy thing being generated will be called the Son of God. That's Luke 1, verse 35. This is sonship created in history, not in eternity. It perfectly fulfilled the great foundational text in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, the promise to David that God would in the future become the father of his descendant. The Messiah's sonship is firmly grounded in a historical event of around 3 BC. His generation occurred when God brought the Son into existence. Acts 13, verse 33, quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. I note that in Acts 13, 34, the writer goes on to speak of the resurrection of Jesus. The result of the Father's misreading of the biblical language was the creation of the Trinitarian Jesus, who is equal in substance with the one God. Yet it's clear in John's Gospel that, quote, Jesus refuses the claim to be God, John 10, verse 33, or in any way to usurp the position of the Father. Jesus is prepared to ignore the charge that by calling God his own Father, he's claiming equality with God, John 5, verse 18, and he accepts that of being the Son of God. John 10, verse 36, while vigorously denying the blasphemy of being God or his substitute. Jacob Jerval agrees. I quote, Jesus is not God, but God's representative, and as such, so completely and totally acts on God's behalf that he stands in God's stead before the world. The gospel clearly states that God and Jesus are not to be understood as identical persons, as in John 14, verse 28, the Father is greater than I. That's a quotation from Jesus in the Gospel of John, written in 1984. Paradoxically, traditional theology has attributed to Jesus the claim to be God, a blasphemy which he discounted by asserting his claim to be the Son of God. Son of God is a legitimate title for a supreme representative of God, since the judges themselves had been addressed as gods with lowercase g. We find that in John 10 verse 34 and Psalm 82 verse 6, which for Jesus is equivalent to Son of God. John 10, verse 36. To be the Son of God was to demonstrate perfect obedience to the Father, the ideal status of Israel, whose citizens are destined to be, quote, sons of the living God, according to Hosea 1, verse 10. Son of God is also the recognized definition of the Messiah, God's chosen King. You'll find that in Psalm 2, verse 6 and 7, 
Psalm 89, verse 26, 27, 35, and 36, and also in Matthew 16, verse 16, and 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. It was to prove the Messiahship of Jesus that John penned his entire gospel. John 20, verse 31. Everywhere in the New Testament, Jesus is declared to be the Lord Messiah, or Lord Jesus Messiah. See, for example, Luke 2, verse 11, for the messianic title Christos Kyrios, Lord Messiah. The term Lord does not, as so often mistakenly thought, mean that Jesus is the Lord God, thus creating the Trinitarian so-called problem. Jesus is the Messiah Lord, based on Psalm 110, verse 1, where the second Lord is the promised Messiah. Peter knew that this psalm described the appointment of Christ as Lord. You'll find that in Acts 2, verses 34 to 36. The enormous significance of Psalm 110, verse 1, for New Testament Christology, has been largely ignored by Trinitarians. The fact that this verse is cited by the New Testament more often than any verse from the Hebrew Scriptures should have alerted us to its critical importance. The use of Adoni, not Adonai, to designate the Messiah in this divine oracle should have prevented Bible students from thinking that Christ was to be God. Jesus did, of course, claim to function for God as his agent. His words are the words of God. His acts are the acts of God. And the Father has conferred on him the right to forgive sins, to judge the world, and even raise the dead. Thus it is that Old Testament verses which have Yahweh as their subject can be applied in the New Testament to the activity of the Son who acts for Yahweh. Trinitarians fail to understand the Hebrew principle of agency when they attempt to show from these verses that Jesus is Yahweh. He is not Yahweh, but he is Yahweh's supremely elevated representative. Jesus' equality of function with his Father does not mean that Jesus is God. Such an idea is an impossibility in John's Gospel, which insists that the Father is, quote, the only true God. John 17, 3. And also the one who alone is God. John 5, verse 44. It should be noted, says J.A.T. Robinson, that John is as undeviating a witness as any in the New Testament to the fundamental tenet of Judaism of unitary monotheism. There is the one true and only God. John 5, verse 44. John 17, verse 3. Everything else is idols. 1 John 5, verse 21. That's a quotation from J.T. Robinson in his 12 more New Testament studies. It seems only reasonable that Scripture should be read, first of all, within its own linguistic and cultural framework. Above all, its bedrock foundation in the Shema of Israel must be recognized. At present, Bible readers and commentators instinctively, so to speak, hear John in the way the creeds have taught them. And they read him through spectacles clouded with Greek philosophy. It is interesting to note the difficulty encountered by so-called orthodox theology when it attempts to justify the new non-biblical meaning assigned to the term Son of God by the post-biblical fathers. William Sanday discusses the title Son of God, and ask the question whether the phrase as used by the New Testament anywhere implies pre-existence. Does Son of God 
he asks in the Bible refer exclusively to Jesus after his birth, or could it mean that he had existed as son before his birth? The question is absolutely critical for the entire Trinitarian problem. Without an eternal son, there is no Trinity. What then are the biblical facts about the Son of God? I quote now from William Sanday in his article on the Son of God in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible. Sanday asks, does Son of God or does it not imply pre-existence? What inference would be drawn from the Gospels? In regard to these, there's no doubt that in the great majority of cases, the words would be satisfied by a reference to Christ incarnate. All the instances in Matthew, Mark, and Luke would come under this head. So then, does John ever speak of Jesus as pre-existent son? Sandy says, that is more debatable. We have to look about somewhat for expressions which are free from ambiguity. Perhaps there are not any. This admission that there may in fact be no certain references in John to Jesus as pre-existent son confirms how far later orthodoxy departed from the evidence of Scripture in its definition of Jesus. The later dogma about belief in the so-called eternal son, a title for which Scripture provides no support, and I add this observation of Buswell, that, quote, we can say with confidence that the Bible has nothing whatever to say about begetting as an eternal relationship between father and son. That was from Buswell's Systematic Theology of the Christian Religion, written in 1962. But I note that without the doctrine of eternal sonship, the doctrine of the Trinity collapses. So with that title, Eternal Son, being absent from John, and as it is sometimes taken to be necessary for salvation, that whole idea was based, as we've seen, on a misreading of the words of John and the substitution of new meanings for key Johannine terms describing Jesus. The development of Christology might have been very different had exegetes remained within the meaning of Son of God as, quote, the highest Christological designation, Jewish Messianic in origin. That's a quotation from Matthew Black in his commentary on Romans in the New Century Bible, written in 1973. James Denny, 1856 to 1917, was a distinguished theologian of the Scottish Free Church, who sensed that there was something unbiblical about the statement that Jesus is God, though he confessed to being a Trinitarian. In his letters to W. Robertson Nicoll, he stated, Jesus is God seems to be one of those provocative ways of describing belief in the deity of Christ. It has the same objectionableness in my mind as calling Mary the mother of God. In Greek and in the first century, you could say Jesus is God, but the English equivalent of that is not Jesus is God with a capital G, but, and I say it as a believer in his true deity, Jesus is God with a small g, not a God, but a being in whom is the nature which belongs to the one God. A form of proposition which in our idiom suggests inevitably the precise equivalence of Jesus and God does some kind of injustice to the truth. That's a quotation from Letters of Principal James Denny to W. Robertson Nicoll. Denny's objection deserves the closest attention from those who insist that Jesus is God. A human being in whom the deity dwells uniquely is well qualified to be the Savior. This is the Savior 
whom God has provided. The facts of church history suggest that the Gnostic heretics misused the Gospel of John. John was adopted as their Gospel, and the stress in the Johannine epistles on Jesus come in the flesh, as to say, as a real human person, 1 John 4, 2, 2 John 7, must be seen as the reaction to the docetic impression John's teaching evidently provoked. That's a quotation from J.T. Robinson's 12 more New Testament studies. A non-fully human Jesus was indeed constructed on the basis of a misunderstanding of John by the Gnostics. John's reaction to this misreading of his gospel was to label such treatment as very antichrist. 1 John 4 verse 3, 2 John 7. It was, as J.T. Robinson goes on to say, a misinterpretation of his intention. But did so-called orthodoxy avoid the same trap when it transposed John's language into Greek philosophical terms? Many have complained that the creed's definition of Jesus as, quote, fully God and fully man misrepresents what John wrote and overlooks the plain description of the human Jesus given by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It must be significant that teaching about the so-called eternal Son relies almost entirely on John's Gospel, even though the Bible Dictionary admits that perhaps even in John there is no certain text to support a pre-human sonship for Jesus. Summary and conclusion. Jesus' humanity is less than real once it is proposed that he did not come into existence in Mary's womb. The absence of any biblical evidence for Jesus being the Son of God before his conception suggests that the widely held belief in his pre-human existence may not be soundly based in Scripture. We propose that it's based on a misreading of John's Gospel by overlooking the peculiar Jewish concept of foreordination found there. The fact that nothing is said about pre-existence in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, and Peter's epistles ought to make us question whether John has really given us a picture of Jesus so different by attributing to him a conscious life before his conception. Did John really pose the so-called Trinitarian problem which caused such trouble in the early centuries? Texts in John which have been claimed as evidence for the literal pre-existence of Jesus have been misunderstood because too little attention has been paid to John's and Jesus' Jewish categories of thought. The phenomenon that past tenses do not always mean a reference to past events has been overlooked. See John 17 verse 5 and compare John 17 verses 22 and 24. In John 3.13, Jesus said nothing of an eternal pre-existence as God the Son. He claimed rather to have been uniquely admitted to the divine counsels. He had not literally, quote, ascended to heaven, nor had the Son of God been in heaven from eternity. He was destined to go to the Father, fulfilling Daniel's vision of the Son of Man in John 6:62. John 13, 3, and John 16, 28, and John 20, verse 17. These verses have been mistranslated in the NIV to give the impression that Jesus was going back to his Father. See, for example, the King James Version and the RSV. His glory had been prepared for him before the world came into existence. John 17, 5, 
and compare Matthew 6, verse 1. Future rewards are already secure, and he was chosen as God's supreme human representative, the Messiah, long before Abraham, as we read in John 8, 58. It was as the human son of man that he had so-called pre-existed in the divine decree. Jesus is convinced that he must carry out God's predetermined plan. I quote, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer all things written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled? That's Luke chapter 24, verses 26 and 44. The notion of real existence before conception led eventually to the fearful complexity and conflicts over the nature of Jesus, which have never been fully resolved. Arguments were silenced by the imposition of a dogmatic Christology at Nicaea and Chalcedon, which dictated an official solution to the problem. The solution, however, attempts to settle the issue largely on the basis of John's very Jewish theology, which was easily and tragically misunderstood by Greeks. The casualties in the dispute over the nature of God and Jesus were the cardinal biblical truths about the unipersonal God and the real humanity of Jesus. Those unitary monotheistic statements are found in John 17, 3, John 5, verse 44, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Mark 12, verse 29 and following, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6, Ephesians 4, verse 6, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and Jude 25. Since the way to eternal life begins with a proper appreciation of the Father as the only true God and Jesus as Messiah, as we read in John 17.3, Bible readers should be alerted to the possible serious damage done to the faith when philosophically-minded Greeks read the Gospel of John without a sound basis in the Old Testament and with too little regard for the Christology of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, which was too hastily dismissed as so-called primitive. In this connection, the words of Karl Rahner are an encouragement to return to the earliest stratum of Christology. Karl Rahner confesses, that, and I quote, we often find traditional Christology difficult to understand and so have questions to put to its source, the Scriptures. For example, let us take so central an assertion of the Scriptures as the statement that Jesus is the Messiah and as such has become Lord in the course of his life, death, and resurrection. Is it agreed that this assertion has simply been made obsolete by the doctrine of the metaphysical sonship as we recognize it and express it in the Chalcedonian Declaration and that its only real interest for us now is historical? Is the Christology of the Acts of the Apostles, which begins from below with the human experience of Jesus, merely primitive? Or has it something special to say to us which classical Christology does not say with the same clarity? That's from Karl Rahner's book, Theological Investigations. Karl Rahner's analysis of the New Testament use of the word God bears repetition. I quote, in no New Testament text is theos, the word for God, used in such a manner as to identify Jesus with him who elsewhere 
in the New Testament figures as O Theos, that is, the Supreme God. Karl Rana also says, and I quote, Nowhere in the New Testament is there to be found a text with Atheos, the Greek for God, which has unquestionably to be referred to the Trinitarian God as a whole, existing in three persons. We suggest that a false distinction has been drawn between a so-called high Christology of John and the Christology so-called from below of the Synoptics. Both John and the Synoptics present a Jesus who comes not only from above, Matthew and Luke say this, by describing Jesus' divine origin in the womb of Mary, but also a Christology from behind, by which Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament promise that the greater son of David will appear. In fact, all New Testament Christology is messianic. Each writer contributes with different emphases to the one portrait of Jesus as Son of God in that messianic sense. It is the transition from Son of God in the biblical sense to God the Son, which has proved so devastating to the apostolic presentation of Jesus. Jeffrey Lamp makes the point forcefully that the introduction of the concept of literal pre-existence throws into doubt the real humanity of Jesus. The Christological concept of the pre-existent divine Son reduces the real social and culturally conditioned personality of Jesus to the metaphysical abstraction human nature. Human nature, according to the classical Alexandrine tradition, was enhypostatized in the divine person of the Son. It became the human nature of a divine personal subject. According to this Christology, the eternal Son assumes a timeless human nature, or makes it timeless by making it his own. It is a human nature which owes nothing essential to geographical circumstances. It corresponds to nothing in the actual concrete world. Jesus has not, after all, really come in the flesh. That's a quotation from Geoffrey Lamp in his book, God as Spirit. A similar warning about the danger of turning Jesus into a being who had an eternal existence before birth comes from Paul van Buren. I quote, There is no clear indication that the priority of Jesus was intended in a temporal sense. We may conclude that for the earliest church, Jesus was accorded the priority in reality that the rabbis assigned to the Torah. If one were to make the claim of priority in a temporal sense, one would be claiming that Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, had existed with God before the creation of the world. That claim would be worse than unintelligible. It would destroy all coherence in the essential Christian claim that Jesus was truly a human being, that the Word became flesh. Jesus of Nazareth began his life, began to exist at a definite time in history. The Word then became flesh. That was from Van Buren's book, A Theology of Jewish Christian Reality, written in 1983. This present volume is prompted by a desire to avoid any such abstract Jesus and to urge a return to the historical Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel. The reading of John, which we suggest, allows John's Jesus 
however elevated, to be as human as that of the Synoptic Gospels. Finding a pre-existent son in John will explain the disparaging way in which so-called orthodox commentators sometimes dismiss Luke's Christology as, so to speak, popular. The fact may be that Luke is representative of a common New Testament Messianic Christology which does not coincide with what became, quote, orthodox in post-biblical times. Referring to Luke 1, verse 35, where we read, that holy thing which is being generated, Strachan says, this belongs to the milieu where the theological idea of the pre-existence of Jesus has given way to a more popular conception of his physical birth. That was a statement from R.H. Strachan in the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church. But this is a circular argument. Has Luke really relinquished the idea of Jesus pre-existing for a more popular understanding? Instead, it seems that post-apostolic so-called orthodoxy developed a point of view which replaced Luke's and John's as well. The shift was more easily accomplished by working from John's Jewish Christian language and John was then thought to have portrayed a Jesus vastly different from the synoptic picture. The re-establishment of a messianic Christology and harmony between all four gospel writers would do much to reunite believers around the central New Testament affirmation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who came to herald the coming kingdom of God. This, after all, is what John set out to prove, declaring that life is to be found in the Jesus who is Son of God and Messiah, John 20, verse 31. Compare with that Matthew 16, verse 16. The invitation to believe and obey that Jesus remains as modern and as urgent as ever. A return to Jesus, the Messiah, will involve a rediscovery of the synoptic Gospels and the Gospel about the Kingdom of God, the much-neglected saving message of the historical Jesus and the Apostles. Much contemporary preaching proceeds as if all that counts is selected sections or verses of the epistles of Paul and the cross of Jesus. Some of the arguments advanced in favor of the doctrine of the Trinity are remarkably misleading. In the Bible it is said, there is one called the Father who is God, one called the Son who is God, and one called the Holy Spirit who is God. But we know that there is only one God, therefore there must be three persons who compose the one God. This is an extraordinary way of presenting the evidence. In fact, there is one in the New Testament called the Father who is said to be the one God, or Theos in Greek, over 1,300 times. He is also designated, quote, the only God in Romans 16, verse 27 and Jude 25. Again, the one who alone is God as in John 5, verse 44, and, again a quotation, the only true God, as in John 17, verse 3. There is one called the Son, Jesus Christ, who is given the title God twice for certain. John 20, verse 28, Hebrews 1, verse 8. But who is never called Otheos, used absolutely, meaning the only God the one who alone is God or the only true God. 
This data hardly suggests that there are two who are to be ranked equally as God, both being the one God. Add to this the fact that God in the Old Testament is said to be a single individual thousands of times. And it should be clear that Trinitarianism does not do justice to the biblical data. Moreover, the titles only God or one who alone is God and only true God apply exclusively to the Father and point to a unique classification of him as distinct from the Son. A mass of New Testament texts presents Jesus as subordinate to the Father, a fact not easily reconciled with the notion that the Son is co-equal with the Father. It's an encouragement to our thesis that the distinguished exegete I. Howard Marshall can write, I quote, all New Testament Christology is subordinationist. That was from a review by Marshall of a book by Jervil in the Theology of the Acts of the Apostles. If the Trinity were taught in the New Testament, one would expect at least one verse somewhere stating that the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Such a statement is absent from the pages of Scripture. When Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are placed together in a biblical passage, they are never said to be the one God. See Matthew 28, verse 19, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. It's remarkable that greetings at the opening of Paul's epistles are never sent from the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit ever addressed or prayed to. When Paul, however, defines monotheism as distinct from polytheism, he expressly says that there is one God, the Father, and there is no other God but that one God, the Father. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 6. I note that symptomatic of confusion over the Godhead is the fact that scholars sometimes inadvertently misquote Paul's own creed. Thus, Class Runia states, quote, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for there is one God from whom are all things and for whom we exist. But Paul actually wrote to us, there is one God, the Father. Runia adds that James and the other apostles say with equal emphasis that Jesus Christ is also God. But where did Jesus or James or Peter say that Jesus is God? Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 8 verses 4 to 6 is in its simple beauty the biblical creed. It should lay all argument to rest. The Godhead has not been expanded God is still the Father alone, as in the Hebrew Bible. He is the Lord God of the creed of Jesus. The latter distinctly identifies himself as a Lord, with lowercase l, who is not the one Lord God of the Shema. See Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. Jesus is the Lord Messiah, and thus constantly designated the Lord Jesus Christ, or Messiah. For that phrase, please consult Luke 2, verse 11, Romans 16, verse 18, Colossians 3, verse 24, and compare with that Luke 1, 43, and include with that Luke 1, verse 43, and the extra-canonical book Psalms of Solomon chapter 17 verse 32 chapter 18 verse 7. Jesus messianic title Lord is derived from Psalm 110 verse 1. The constant confusion by Trinitarians 
of the supreme messianic title Lord, confusing it with Lord, meaning the Lord God, is the cause of all the difficulty. There's no good reason to blur the clear difference between Lord Messiah, Adoni, and Lord God, who is Yahweh and Adonai. See Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 5. In the Greek version, the Septuagint, of course, all these words appear as Kyrios. We may still fully acknowledge that Jesus operates on behalf of God. An important point was made by George Kerd when he referred to the Jewish practice of addressing an agent as though he were the principal. In 2nd Esdras 5, verses 43 to 56, God's spokesman, the angel Uriel, is questioned by Ezra as though he were both creator and judge. Ezra uses the same style of address to Uriel, that's to say, my lord, my master, as he uses in direct petition to God. This practice of treating the agent as though he were the principal is of the greatest importance for New Testament Christology. That was from C.B. Kerr's book, The Language and Imagery of the Bible, written in 1980. Many Trinitarians seem content to hold two contradictory propositions at the same time without trying to harmonize them. God is one, and yet he is three. This is what the official creeds appear to ask of them. But the Bible requires no such mental feat. Some Trinitarians attempt to escape the charge that belief in three persons, each of whom is God, must involve belief in three gods. They respond that God and Jesus are not persons in the way in which we customarily use that term. The obvious fact, however, is that every New Testament writer describes Jesus as a being self-consciously different from his Father. There is no mystification about the term Son and not a word about eternal generation. The contradictory proposition embodied in the Trinity is unnecessary as well as unbiblical. It tends to undermine both the cardinal biblical tenet that God is one and the foundation of all truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of David. Matthew 16, verse 16, 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, Hebrews 1, verse 5. Christians are entitled to know what ideas have shaped the belief system which has been presented to them as the faith. Many are unaware of the crypto-gnostic element which has been handed down to us in Trinitarian Christology. Throughout his ministry, Paul struggled to fend off the menace of knowledge or gnosis falsely so-called. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. In the post-apostolic church, the danger of Gnostic philosophy invading the faith was not averted. Though the church claimed to be rejecting the blatant forms of Gnosticism, it failed to prevent a more subtle Gnostic influence from corrupting the original teaching about God and Christ. The attempt to proclaim the deity of Jesus led to untold complexity over his so-called two natures and the borrowing of pagan concepts which find no place in the scriptures. The remark of a distinguished expert on early Gnosticism deserves the widest hearing. I quote, The early Christian fathers, foremost Irenaeus and Tertullian, strove hard to find forms which make intelligible in a non-Gnostic sense 
the prevailing division of the one Jesus Christ. Strictly speaking, they did not succeed. Already Harnack was forced to say, quote, Who can maintain that the church ever overcame the Gnostic doctrine of the two natures or the Valentinian Docetism? Even the later councils of the church, which discussed the Christological problems in complicated and nowadays hardly intelligible definitions, did not manage to do this. The unity of the church founded precisely on this. It has often been forgotten that Gnostic theologians saw Christ as consubstantial with the Father before ecclesiastical theology established this as a principle in order to preserve his full divinity. That was a quotation from Kurt Rudolf in his book Gnosis, The Nature and History of Gnosticism, written in 1983. If it be granted that Christians have as their aim to recognize and serve the Christ of Scripture and God his Father, it must follow that they will want to possess the most accurate possible understanding of who that Christ is. Such understanding will confine itself to the portrayal of Jesus provided by the Christian documents. It is questionable whether traditional, orthodox definitions of Jesus pay close enough attention to the proportions of the biblical material. John's prologue has been so elevated in importance for the definition of Jesus that all the other evidence has had to bow to what was perceived as being the truth of that passage. Paul's famous Christological statement in Philippians 2 has likewise been taken as the norm for all his other references to Jesus, though many do not believe that Paul says anything in that text about a pre-existent person. Rather, Paul exhorts the believers to imitate the self-sacrificing lifestyle of the Messiah Jesus, who, after all, is the subject of Paul's statement, according to Philippians 2, verse 5. I note A. H. McNeil's observation that, quote, many have doubted whether Paul would have appealed in such a context in Philippians 2 to a mystery so transcendent. In Philippians 2, Paul is begging the Philippians to cease from dissensions and to act with humility toward each other. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he is exhorting his readers to be liberal in almsgiving. It is asked whether it would be quite natural for him to enforce these two simple moral lessons by incidental references and the only reference he ever makes to the vast problem of the mode of the Incarnation, and it is thought by many that his homely appeals would have more effect if he pointed to the inspiring example of Christ's humility and self-sacrifice in his human life, as in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, where he says, I exhort you by the meekness and forbearance of Christ. That was from McNeil's New Testament teaching in the light of St. Paul, written in 1923. The case for Philippians 2, verse 5 and following, being a description of the human Jesus, may be examined in articles by C.H. Talbot, The Problem of Preexistence in Philippians 2, 6-11, in the Journal of Biblical Literature in 1967, also, J. Murphy O'Connor, an article entitled Christological Anthropology in Philippians 2, 6-11, written in the Revue Biblique in 1976. And also, George Howard, Philippians 2, 6-11, and 
the human Christ in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly in 1978. If full weight is given to the evidence of the synoptics and acts and the non-Pauline epistles, it becomes clear that their combined testimony is to Jesus as Messiah, not God, in the Chalcedonian sense. The same may be argued for John. John's own summary statement about the purpose of his gospel, that Jesus is to be believed in as Messiah, John 20, verse 31, points to the fact that he is at one with his fellow witnesses to the faith, even Hebrews 1.10, which of all texts might appear to ascribe the Genesis creation to Jesus, in fact, does not do so. For a detailed examination of Hebrews 1, verse 10, we recommend F.F. Bruce's analysis in the New International Commentary on Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews cites the Septuagint version, which differs significantly from the Masoretic Hebrew text. The writer expressly says that it's about the inhabited earth of the future, Hebrews 2.5, that he's been speaking, and it was God who rested at creation, Hebrews 4 verse 4, just as, according to Jesus, it was God who, quote, made them male and female, as we find in Mark 10 verse 6, compare with that Mark 13 verse 19. If, with the New American Standard Version, we read, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, it's clear that the author intends us to understand a reference to Jesus' function as founder of the coming world of the kingdom. But even this is not necessary. It may well be that the Hebrews writer is giving us another of a series of quotations. Occasional so-called difficult verses must not override the plain evidence distributed throughout Scripture.